0: It's Friday, 3rd of November, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. Coming up is an Italian debt crisis on the cards and what next with the Bank of Japan. But first, happy to say that Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing is just back and with us on the podcast after a week of client visits in North America. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. Let's start with the state of the world economy. Lots of data this past week, mostly not so great, but we've also just had that U.S. payrolls report for October. Tell us, what do we make of all these relations?
1: Yes, you're right. On the whole, not great, but I think context is really important. We've spoken before, haven't we, about how this cycle, for want of a better word, is quite weird, and that's doing weird things to the data. So uh, earlier in the week, we had that US uh, ISM manufacturing number that was much weaker than expected, and in particular, the new orders part was weak. I think that spook parts of the market, but remember that the manufacturing sector globally is already in a kind of recession because of this shift uh, in consumption patterns away from manufactured goods and back towards services as economies reopen. Uh, open. So that ISM manufacturing survey used to be the kind of bellwether of US recession, but it hasn't been in this, in this cycle because this cycle is unusual. So I won't pay too much attention there. Every rose number that we've just had, I mean, clearly it adds to evidence that US labour market conditions are softening, but you can make the argument it's a bit of a Goldilocks number really for the Fed. Payrolls down, wage growth down. I think if you were looking for signs of something a bit more troubling happening in the global economy and in the US economy, the household labour survey that came out also a few hours ago that was altogether more troubling and contributed to a rise in the unemployment rate. And then that was followed by the ISM non-manufacturing survey, which dropped to a five-month low in October too. So you put the ISM uh, manufacturing and non-manufacturing surveys together, that is now kind of at a level that has usually been consistent with the US economy kind of treading water, maybe even contracting a little. So not great data, no. And of course, we've had some, some weak data from from the Eurozone too over the past over the past few days. And then on top of that, you add in the the weakness of the China PMIs that we've had this week. Well, the evidence has started to point to the fact that the global economy got off on a, quite a weak footing at the start of Q4.
0: So we're just starting to put together our views on on what clients should be expecting in the coming years, based on all that you've just said about that data. What what do you think the picture looks like for growth
1: next year? Well, the big question that we've been having over the past kind couple of weeks or so with clients is: Will there, won't there, be a recession? We think, on balance, there probably will be a recession. It'll be a mild recession. And obviously, we've had that one quarter of negative GDP growth just in the eurozone. I don't think that really qualifies as a recession, if I'm being honest. I think really I would characterize at the moment the eurozone economy is stagnant, US economy growing very strongly in Q3, but on a weaker footing going into Q4. Does that crystallize in terms of a recession, the start of 2024? I think possibly, yes. I think that's the kind of direction that we're heading in still on balance. But I think the key point to emphasize is that inflation's coming down irrespective of the, the weakness of activity. If you look at what's happening to the, the the inflation numbers that we have from the Eurozone over the past week or so, they were pretty encouraging for the ECB. The average hourly earnings numbers that we had in the payroll report just now from the US, that would be good news for the Fed. So yeah, on balance, I think we're still in for a period of you know, weaker activity, mild recessions, probably at the start of next year. But the key point for central banks is that inflation looks like it's coming down irrespective, and and that's what they're going to be clearly focused on.
0: Certainly seems to be what the bond market's running with. I mean, barely more than a week ago, we were talking about the 10-year US Treasury yield at 5%. Now it seems to be back down to not much more than 4.5%. Not just Treasuries, though. Gilt yield's also down sharply European bond yields as well so is is the worst over for the bond
1: market well i'll remind you that when we spoke on this podcast last i said that i thought that the the surge in bond yields was about to run into economic reality and i think to some extent that's what we've we've seen right we've seen a, a run of weaker economic data and that's contributed to the to the drop in in bond yields that we've seen over the past week or so i think the other thing that's going on though is and this has come up consistently in client meetings over the past couple of weeks is concern about the fiscal backdrop, particularly in the US. Obviously, that contributed to that rise in term premium that that appears to have been at least contributed to the to the rise in bond yields that we saw through October. Earlier this week, the US Treasury announced its financing schedule for Q4, and I think one reading of that, our reading of that, is that it had looked at what had happened in the bond market and had adjusted accordingly. So it cut back the scale of issuance, particularly at the kind of back end of the curve. And that has contributed, I think, to having taken some of the heat out of bond markets and then helped to bring bring yields back down. So I think still some genuine concerns about the the trajectory of US fiscal policy. We can get into what all that means for central banks in due course. But I think if we're going to be wrong on, on the kind of pace and timing of rate cuts in 2024, it's likely to be because fiscal policy is is kept looser for for longer. So those concerns have not gone away, but that financing schedule earlier this week, I think that's also helped to take some of the the heat out of bond markets. So a combination of some of those really acute fiscal concerns and financing concerns on the fiscal side, diminishing the economic data being weaker. Obviously, had the Fed too. Comments by Powell appeared to kind of damp down expectations of of a further rate hike this year. Put all that together, and I think that's why you, you we've seen this kind of big drop in in ten-year yields over the past few days.
0: Yeah, we've had lots of questions from clients this week all about uh debt sustainability in, in a higher rate world. But for now though, as you say, it all seems to be about uh inflation in, in the bond market. We've had the big October-November meetings though from from the Fed and the ECB and the Bank of England. Headlines from all is is no change on on
1: policy rates. But what do we learn from, from the messaging. Well, I mean, just on that point on fiscal sustainability, I think one of the points that's really, really important to get across is that if we're talking about, as we have done in, in some of our work on our star, a period of higher interest rates structurally over the next five to 10 years because of a rebound in productivity growth caused by the AI revolution, then that's not necessarily a concern from, from the point of view of the public finances. Higher R higher interest rates because of higher G growth isn't a problem from the fiscal point of view the fiscal position. What was troubling about the the sell-off in the bond market that we had over the past month or so is that it wasn't necessarily accompanied by an increase in the pace of growth. It wasn't about kind of faster growth feeding higher interest rates. It was about fiscal concerns and term premium going up as a result. And that, that's, that becomes quite toxic for public finances and the, and the fiscal position. So it's really important to distinguish why right, interest rates are going up, whether that's accompanied by a, by an increase in economic growth, when you're thinking about fiscal sustainability. And that gets you back to your point about central banks and the extent to which they should be worried about fiscal policy when they're setting monetary policy. Now, what we learned this week was, um, unsurprisingly, that they weren't drawn on fiscal concerns. You wouldn't expect them to be. What we learned, though, was from the perspective of economic growth and inflation, pushing back a bit, I think, certainly in the case of the Fed, on the idea that additional rate hikes uh, will be needed. So we've obviously had the sell-off of the bond market through October. It came clear, I think, when you looked at Powell's words, you kind of watched the press conference, just pushing back a bit on the idea that additional rate hikes that were embedded in the dot plots that we had in September's FOMC meeting, just pushing back against it, the idea that those will be necessary. And of course, that's been our, our view for a while that the, that the Fed is done. So it out together. We've had the Fed, the Bank of England this week. I think both of those central banks are done. The question as we get towards the end of this year is going to be at what point and under what conditions might both start to cut. Um, Clearly, that's not on the table for the time being. But I think the other important point here is that there's no way you'd expect those central banks to be given a clear timeframe for cutting rates. That's the last thing they want to be doing when they've been scrambling to get back ahead of the, the curve. So... Not on the agenda for now, but it will start to come back onto the agenda, I think, as we get into 2024. And I suspect by kind of back end of Q1, start of Q2, it could be getting the Fed thinking about starting to to lower rates. And then the ECB and, and Bank of England much later in the year. Yeah, then probably the ECB, Bank of England follow. Like I say, fiscal policy is a bit of a wild card in this in this regard. If U.S. fiscal policy is kept loose, and obviously there are a couple of things happening now, the resumption of tax payments in California, for example, and also student loan repayments that will contribute to a kind of quasi-fiscal tightening in the U.S. But if fiscal policy in the U.S. remains pretty loose, then that might push back the timetable for, for Fed rate cuts. But assuming that's not the case, then I think, yeah, the Fed probably acts ahead of the ECB and the Bank of England, given that it was Kind of earlier to tighten, and the and U.S. inflation tends to move about six months ahead of European inflation in this cycle. So yeah, my my sense would be the U.S. would move first, and, and then others would follow. But fiscal policy is, is becoming an increasing wild card here.
0: I have to say, central bank decisions all seem a bit prosaic given that according to Rishi Sunak, AI is a threat to humanity comparable to nuclear war. We published our big AI project just over a month ago and that argues for this technology's transformative economic potential. So is it a case of enjoy the productivity upsides while you can because we're all going to be wiped out anyway? I mean, how is an investor meant to untangle all of this?
1: Yes, over the past week in the UK, we've had this AI conference at Bletchley Park where the great and the good have met. I think one of the the things that was striking to me, at least, was how much of the the debate and conversation was around risks and threats from AI and the need for guardrails and common frameworks and monitoring councils. Which is not to say that AI doesn't entail some kind of risks and threats. Clearly it does. And it's positive that, that the world leaders are starting to think about the response and the necessary regulation. But it's striking that we've not yet had a conference about how to harness the economic benefits of AI, and I think those will be considerable. Now, it's not going to transform the the economic outlook over the next year or so, but I think as we get towards the back end of this decade, as we've been arguing in our Spotlight report, the, the potential for transformation in productivity growth as a result of AI is comparable to what we saw during the ICT revolution in the mid-90s and indeed other major technological breakthroughs like electricity and steam, going all the way back to the late 19th century and and indeed the 18th century. So I think we need to think about AI as being this general purpose technology that will transform all sectors of economies, not just the tech sector, and that could therefore transform economy-wide productivity potential too. What has been laid bare, I think, over the past week or so is there's going to be a really difficult balance for policymakers to strike between regulating AI such that some of the more concerning nefarious aspects are controlled, while at the same time not throttling the development of the technology in the first place and therefore failing to realise those economic benefits.
0: Neil Shearing there, talking AI risks and opportunities, as well as central bank moves and bond market reactions. I'll include a link to our Spotlight project about AI on the podcast page and to a recording of the drop-in, which is one of our short-form online briefings, which we held just after that Bank of England decision on Thursday. Now, on this question of debt sustainability in the post-pandemic era, Italy is one of the country's most under market scrutiny. Franziska Palmas from our Europe team has just revised our forecast for Italy's public debt ratio in light of our work on artificial intelligence and on our star or equilibrium real rates. And it's not good news. We now think that Italy's debt ratio will rise to 150% of the GDP by mid-century from just over 140% last year. That's a huge change from our previous expectation that it was going to fall back to 130%. To find out what happened and whether this means an Italian debt crisis is on the cards, I spoke to Francisca earlier in the week. And I started by asking her why we've made such big revisions to our forecasts.
2: Yeah, so obviously it's a big, it's a big increase in our forecast for the debt ratio. So the main proximate cause why we have raised our forecast is that we now expect Italy's government bond yields to be significantly higher in the long run than we previously thought. So previously we had a forecast for the ten-year bond yields to settle. around 4%. Now it's more around 5%, even a bit higher. And the main reason why we have revised up our forecast for the bond yield is that in the uh, course of doing some in-depth work on neutral interest rates across developed markets, we have raised this forecast. So we now expect the ECB policy rate to also be higher in the long run. And on top of that, we also think that The risk premium on Italy's government bonds will be higher than it has been pre-pandemic outside of crisis period because the underlying debt dynamics are more fragile. And so because of Italy's high legacy debt, this increase in our forecasts for the interest rate means that we now think that Italy's interest rate expenditure will be much higher, 7% of GDP rather than around 5% of GDP. Now, of course, though, it would be too simplistic to say that, you know, the deterioration in the outlook for Italy's debt ratio is just simply a result of this fact that we expect higher interest rates. And like the fact that just such a relatively small increase in the interest rate leads to such a different path for the debt ratio is really, you know, a reflection of the underlying fragilities of, pe- of Italy's public finances. And that's go back to three things. One is Italy's very high legacy debt level of, in 2022, 142% of GDP, which obviously means that even a small change in interest rates leads to big changes in interest rate expenditure as a percentage of GDP. The other is that Italy has extremely sluggish potential GDP growth. That goes back to Italy's weak demographics and also to Italy's weak productivity growth. And we think both of these factors will continue to keep italian gdp growth very weak in the in the coming decades and finally there are constraints on you know how much italy's governments are able to counter these other factors by tightening fiscal policy that's partly due to politics and that's partly also because demands on fiscal spending in italy will increase over the next decades because of population aging So all of these factors combined mean that then if you raise your forecast for interest rates a little bit, suddenly you have a much bigger increase in the debt ratio, but that ultimately just reflects the fact that, you know, a lot of factors make Italy's public finance so vulnerable to even small changes in interest rates or growth or fiscal policy. And that is ultimately the cause of the fragility of of Italy's public finances.
0: So a debt ratio rising from 142% in 2022 last year, so rising to around 150% by 2050. Put that in context, what does that mean in terms of default risk?
2: Yeah, so, well, obviously, you know, an upward sloping debt ratio is something that one should be wary about, especially if one is coming from such a high debt level in the first place. So it's clear that you know, Italy's public finances are fragile and that there is definitely risk that investors start to worrying about Italy's public finance. And there's some turmoil in Italy's government bond market. We have flagged, you know, this risk repeatedly. That said, a period of rising debt ratio does not necessarily mean that there is going to be a default. Ultimately, what matters is whether Italy can keep accessing bond markets and refinancing and rollover its debt at a you know reasonable interest rate. And we think that actually it's more or less likely than not that it's going to be able to continue to do that even if its debt ratio rises somewhat. There's three conditions for that to happen, which we think are crucial. One is that investors need to be convinced that Ultimately, if Italy's government bond yields rise to fire, the ECB is going to intervene to backstop the Italian bond market. And we think that this condition will remain in place because the ECB has shown, for example, by launching its transmission protection instrument, that you know it remains committed to, to doing this ultimately if it comes down to it. We think policymakers have learned from, from what happened during the Eurozone crisis. The other two conditions are the Italian government needs to remain committed to membership of the Eurozone. Now, obviously, we don't know what's going to (laughs) happen with future Italian governments, but for now, at least it's encouraging that even the more populist leaning parties, including the one in the current governing coalitions, none of them is putting into question Italy's membership of the Eurozone. So the third condition that we think uh, needs to be in place is that Italian governments need to continue to run a fairly responsible uh, fiscal policy. On that front, obviously, again, there is uncertainties about what future government might want to do. However, there is some, you know, encouraging signs. For one, the current coalition, even though it's populist leaning, has so far run fairly responsible fiscal policy in line with the recommendations of the European Commission, for example. And we've seen also in the past that even in cases of emergency, if it really comes down to it, actually, Italian government have tended to implement the necessary fiscal tightening to stop a full-blown fiscal crisis. For example, that happened in the period of 1992 during the currency crisis. it happened in 2012 during the Eurozone crisis, often through the help of bringing in some, a technical government. And again, before Italy entered the Eurozone, when it was necessary to improve Italy's public finances to qualify for joining the currency union, again, Italian governments were actually able to run quite quite tight fiscal policies. So those are encouraging signs that we think Ultimately, the Italian government have understood the external constraints on fiscal policy from the bond market and will not want to, you know, to risk sparking a crisis.
0: You say that, but what about these recent signs that the Maloney government's fiscal discipline does seem to be slipping? We had those new budget forecasts uh, about a month ago that that briefly at least had had the bond market uh, in panic. And at the same time, you know, we we are in this environment of slowing growth uh, and we are in a, a, you know, as you've described, we're in a higher rate environment. So are, are there nearer term risks here around this fiscal question as growth slows with rates at levels that they are?
2: There are definitely near term fiscal risks. As you mentioned, the Italian government, which had started out in its first year pretty well, you know, uh, running a pretty conservative budget, which, which pleased the markets. This year, the government actually decided to, you know, raise its deficit target compared to what it had announced last year and to raise also the targets for the upcoming years. So obviously that is a sign that, you know, the government's conviction is already starting to wane a little bit, and it seems like there is an attempt to try to run a bit looser fiscal policy than they had initially suggested they they would do, which is obviously is a concern. That said, there is some encouraging signs in the sense that the government is definitely still wanting to tighten fiscal policy. And that it's still following the European Commission's recommendations in terms of what they are projecting for the primary balance and for growth in primary expenditures. So I would characterize it as it's not an attempt to run extremely loose fiscal policy, go in a clash with the European Commission, like, for example, the Italian government had done in 2018 triggering a much longer lasting period of turmoil in the bond market, it's more an attempt to do as little fiscal tightening as they can get away with. So in a sense, that is obviously dangerous because it's very easy, you know, to to misunderstand what is still within the realms of, of things that investors might be willing to accept. So it's definitely an attitude that means there is risk that the government, you know, tries to tighten fiscal policy even a bit less in the coming years than they have announced, etc. And then there is some turmoil in bond markets, but it's still encouraging that the government does seem to understand that they have some limits in what they can do with fiscal policy and that they need to tighten fiscal policy over over the coming years. So I think there's going to be this constant risk that there is some period of turmoil, but perhaps, you know, the, the risk of a prolonged... Period of trouble in, in bond markets is, is is still not as acute as it has been at times in the past.
0: That was Francisca Palmas talking about her new report on Italian debt. There was a lot in her report that we didn't have time to get into, not least why there's more that could go wrong than right for Italy's debt picture, meaning that the ratio could feasibly rise to a whacking 170% of GDP do take a look at that report and also sign up for our drop-in this thursday at 3 o'clock london time 10 o'clock new york to ask economists from our europe and markets teams about italian debt and the outlook for btp yields staying on drop-ins here's a clip from our recent asia drop-in now we run monthly sessions on the region's big macro market stories and the day that the team held this briefing there wasn't a bigger story in global markets than the bank of japan's tweak to its yield curve control policy now, Marcel Tillian, who leads our Japan coverage, thinks yield curve control is now basically dead as a policy. And in this clip, which I've edited for clarity, you'll hear Marcel, Chief Asia Economist Mark Williams, and Senior EM Asia Economist Gareth Leather. The clip begins with Marcel talking about the Bank of Japan's next policy steps. Um, well, we, we still think
3: that the Bank of Japan will end negative interest rates with the inflation forecast for, for inflation is fresh food and energy for 2025 at 1.9%. So that the, that's the highest uh, since they started publishing those forecasts last year and uh, very close to the 2% target. So any any further upward revision would bring it to the 2% target, uh, which would then be a signal that that the 2% target will be met on a sustained basis. Uh, one factor that the Bank of Japan is closely watching are the upcoming spring wage ne- negotiations. We already had the uh, wage request from the the trade union confederation, which points to a a much bigger pay hike next year than this year. Uh, That we think will just be enough for the bank to to, to end negative interest rates, but there's a risk that they will will wait until the first round of results of those talks, which are due in March. So maybe the rate hike could happen a bit later. In terms of yield curve control, it's now very difficult to say, because if you're right and the, the policy is de facto over, then... Uh, the Bank of Japan has a history of keeping policies on paper that it no longer enforces in practice. Uh, that was the case, for example, with their pledge to, to expand the, the monetary base by 80 trillion uh, per annum, which, which was um, abandoned after the, the launch of yield curve control, but made on paper for another four years. So it's possible that this will also remain the case for yield curve control, uh, but uh, maybe where that takes a different approach is possible that he will actually call for the formal, formal abandonment of field curve control. If that were to happen, we think it will happen probably a bit after the end of negative interest rates, um, just to prevent any big rise in bond yields. So maybe by the middle of next year.
4: Great, thank you. Yeah, I remember that four years of Bank of Japan policy statements uh, with a with a target which was being roundly ignored, but it just stayed in the, in the statement. Um, Gareth, I just wanted one um, last one for you on the export picture. A question on, have you been surprised by the strength of exports in Asia uh, recently? And if I could just give you some added breaking news, um, the, the, the Taiwan GDP release came out uh, 23 minutes ago. Uh, and that shows again some pretty strong export numbers. So Taiwan's exports grew 2.9% Q on Q uh, in, in, in Q3, having already grown by about the same amount in Q2. So two consecutive courses of very strong export both came from Taiwan. got Korean export data coming up, and we um, tomorrow, I think. Um, but generally, it's been pretty strong recently.
5: Yeah. So we'd had a period where exports were very, very weak, mostly just a kind of hangover from. The pandemic i think but more recently we've seen an upturn as you mentioned the taiwan figures have been quite strong the national account data that we got for Korea as well pointed to a strong export rebound i think much of this is due to what we've seen in the u.s that the asian exports that the strength has mostly been to the u.s and there you've seen very strong growth in the most recent quarter driven mainly by private consumption now our forecast is that the strength in the u.s won't last that the drivers of the rebound and consumption kind of running down consumers running down pandemic-related savings will cease. And so we wouldn't be surprised to see a kind of further leg down in exports. So the recent rebound that we've seen will probably prove temporary. And if that's the case, then it will weigh quite heavily on the region's most export-dependent economies, probably including Taiwan. So the recent rebound that we've seen in Taiwan probably won't last. Is there any
4: evidence... um, Sorry, I said that was the last question, but I've got one more for you. Um, Is there any evidence that this um, export boom is linked to the the surge, any sort of surge of AI... Uh, investment, data centers, graphics chips, and that sort of thing? Or is it simply cyclical strength um,
5: coming through? I think there might be a little bit of that. So if you look at the Taiwan trade data, for example, it's the the, the bits that have been doing most well, and also for careers, well, the bits that have been doing most well are the, um are the semiconductor sector. So You know, it's kind of maybe too early to be drawing too firm a conclusion, but there's some initial signs maybe that this AI boom is benefiting these countries. And they're the ones that you'd expect to benefit. They're the ones that are most kind of clued into um, the chips that are used to power the AI.
0: That was Gareth Leather talking to Mark Williams about Asian exports, and you heard Marcel Tillian there on the Bank of Japan. As I said, that's just a clip from a much longer discussion, which the team held covering everything from Asian FX to China's recovery to Taiwan's election this coming January check out the recording on the podcast page and look out for our monthly Asia drop-in, which we generally hold on the first Thursday of every month. For more on the Bank of Japan and its potential rate hike, check out our dedicated BOJ webpage, which has much more from Marcel, including his new analysis on Japanese wage pressures, as well as from our Asia and markets teams on what a rate hike could do to Japanese and global financial markets. If you're a CE advanced subscriber, you get access to all our BOJ coverage, as well as what its policy mean for Japan's economy and for global markets. Also get our coverage of broader issues around the rise in bond yields and where they'll settle across DMs and EMs in the post-pandemic economy. That includes our recent work on our star and the underlying data and forecasts at the heart of that analysis. But that's it for this week. Until next time, goodbye. Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever.